Welcome to Asia-Pacific Defence Reporter, your go-to source for cutting-edge security insights in the region. Get ready for rapid-fire analysis and commentary from the Asia-Pacific with your host, Kim Bergman. Hello and welcome back. Uh, this podcast is going to have a slightly different structure to a couple of the previous ones in that there are a number of issues that I'm going to try and canter through fairly quickly and uh, spend more time on some of the bigger ones. First of all, in the previous podcast, when I mentioned the hilarious story of the Bushmaster vehicle and the dry sponge test, if anyone's interested, just go back and have a look at that. I omitted to mention that this occurred at a fairly early stage in the program when it was being managed by Australian Defence Industries, which of course was government owned. And so people really didn't care that much about cost or schedule. It was basically one part of the government dealing with another. So there was no sense of urgency fixing the problem and no real concern about the large amounts of money that was being caused by this bizarre methodology. Secondly, the Hunter-class frigates. I mentioned the three areas where I thought that I and the media, probably the entire defence establishment, had been misled. They were the maturity of the design, whether a virtual twin existed, and finally on the level of Australian content for the first three ships. I've actually been assured that the virtual twin does exist. I'm told it's very impressive. So if Navy or Defence or BAE Systems would like to get their act together and show some of us what they're doing, we would all be very interested. On the other two points, yeah, everyone does agree. We were misled about the maturity of the design and we were misled about the early level of Australian content. Also, a quick comment about uh, nuclear submarine disposal. I've touched on this in the current edition of the magazine in some detail and also in a previous podcast. And I'd point out that the whole idea of disposing of second-hand nuclear submarines in Australia which we've agreed to, it would seem, is completely contrary to ALP policy, certainly the spirit of ALP policy, which is pretty extensive when it comes to the uranium industry, nuclear industry. Just one sentence of many. I've read the whole document so that you don't have to. One sentence says that the ALP remain strongly opposed to the importation and storage of nuclear waste that is sourced from overseas in Australia. Okay, I suppose if you were some sort of smart aleck lawyer, you'd say the nuclear waste that will come from the submarines isn't sourced from overseas. The original material, the uranium-235 is, but the waste has been generated while the submarines are in service in Australia. But gee, you're really clutching at straws there because the first two submarines, if we get them, will be second-hand Virginia-class submarines. They will have been operated by the USN, all of this sort of stuff, clearly against the spirit of uh, ALP national policy. Now, it's possible at the forthcoming conference in August, someone will try for some sort of carve-out, but I tell you what, it still looks like a very poor deal for Australia. Now, some nuclear waste is stored in Australia, that produced by the Australian Nuclear Science and Technology Organisation by ANSTO that operates the Lucas Heights reactor. 
But this is really low-level waste. This is stuff that barely registers on the level of things that are dangerous. A lot of it is stored on site in 44-gallon drums. What we're talking about for nuclear-powered submarines is entirely different. It's highly enriched uranium, and I can assure everyone that storing of that stuff, let alone ultimately disposing of it, is a huge, risky, and expensive business. There's a lot of stuff available on the internet. It's not top secret. It's public domain information. I encourage everyone to have a further look at it. Another quick current issue worth mentioning is the decision of the government not to send Hawkeye vehicles to Ukraine, knocking back a request from Kiev. Again, as I've detailed in the current edition of the magazine, there's actually no technical reason why they can't go. And the information that has been put in the public domain is at best misleading. I'd go a little bit further and say that it's untrue, as harsh as it is to say that. And have said there are two reasons. There are problems with the ABS braking system and the vehicles are therefore unsafe and can't be deployed. Secondly, that they can't be supported in Ukraine. The government, the politicians, have done the weakest possible thing and have said in going along with this that they agree with departmental advice. It only takes, and that, that they know all of the facts, by the way, so what's being said to the public is, is deceptive. There might be a few minor problems or a minor problem with the ABS braking system, but the fact is that whenever those vehicles go off-road, you always switch off the ABS. So it's not a, a technical issue, it's a regulatory issue about registering the vehicles so that they can be driven on Australian roads. It has nothing at all to do with potential deployment in the Ukraine. The Ukrainians know it, Australians know it, the public is being told an untruth. Regarding their supportability in Ukraine, well, that might be a little bit more difficult, but not much, because even though most of the, no, sorry, the vehicles are assembled by Talus in Bendigo, and more than 50% of the content, the subsystems, you know, the various bits and pieces, are sourced from Australian industry. But that means that a lot of it is coming from overseas, including the engines, which are from Austria, the transmission from Germany, the add-on armour from Israel, and a few other bits and pieces from the United States. You only have to look at a, a map of the world. All of those places are much closer to Ukraine than Australia is, so the logistics of getting them there are not going to be any more difficult than getting them here. And so supporting the vehicles in Ukraine would be, in my opinion, it's just a matter of common sense, would be more difficult than doing it in Australia, but by no means impossible. Also, the Ukrainians are really switched on when it comes to logistic support. That's one of the many admirable aspects of, of how well they're performing. They've really sorted out issues of infield resupply, rapid repair, all of that sort of stuff. Australia can only look at that and envy. Big topic, the robo-debt royal commission. Now, okay, not at first directly connected with, with defence, but a lot of people in Canberra are asking, is there any possible relevance to defence? And I believe, yeah, you bet there is. I th okay, even though defence has clearly not gone around sending out incorrect bills to people insisting that they 
pay them back and driving kids to suicide and, and all of that sort of stuff. There are a number of projects where I have no idea what sort of process has been followed in coming to a particular result. Billions of dollars, and I do mean billions, of dollars are being spent with very little accountability, with very little explanation of, of what's going on. And to circle back to RoboDebt, in my view, the Royal Commission, it's not my view, the, the fact is the Royal Commissioner has recommended criminal charges be laid against a number of the individuals involved. They're presumably senior public servants. I don't think there's, I, I think that the politicians have got off scot-free. That's a little joke, scot-free, Scott Morrison, Prime Minister. Anyway, now look, whether those criminal charges are laid and whether they stick, whether anyone is found guilty, I don't know. It's too early to tell. But at the very least, on what we know so far via the Royal Commission report, I think that there are several people who clearly are guilty of unprofessional conduct. And I wonder if that can also apply to defence where people have cooked up some sort of scheme and then presented false or incomplete advice to government and the government itself has been complicit. I'll just, and I realise this is a hugely controversial topic, okay? So again, I'll try and be careful but factual about what I'm saying here. These are just the ones that leap out at me, thinking about connection to, to, to robo-debt, things that I believe are well worth some sort of further independent analysis. One, the scrapping of the Elbert Battle Management System for the Australian Army, the reasons why that happened. It's still a mystery, hasn't been fully replaced, probable cost to the taxpayer about $2 billion. The big one that, again, which I've been going on about the AUKUS nuclear-powered submarine thing. There's a lot more to that than has come out in public. I obviously do not know what the nuclear task force has been telling government, particularly there must have been a whole lot of briefings. Has the nuclear power task force and the Navy been really open and honest about this issue of disposal? Have they explained to government the scale of the facilities that are going to be necessary to handle the uranium-235 from the potentially from the mid-2040s onwards? Another one which has always troubled me, it's a fundamental one, in all of this sort of huge cheer squad behind nuclear-powered submarines, we've got to go nuclear, conventional is, is old stuff, uh, whether any proper analysis has been done, because I wonder if the debate has been framed in terms of the performance of nuclear-powered submarines compared with the Collins class, particularly when it comes to things like indiscretion rates where Collins has to come to the surface, depending on operational conditions, every day or two. And yes, when it's got its snorkel mast up and, and all the rest, it's it, it can be detected. It's not quite as easy as people maintain, but you know it can be detected. However, if you look at current generation conventional submarines that use air-independent propulsion, and that is just about every Navy except for the Royal Australian Navy. Even on today's technology, using today's technology, you can get underwater endurance of about 20 days. Now, it's just an, an act of maths. If you're traveling at four knots continuously, 24 hours a day for 20 days, that covers a distance of 
3,500 kilometers. 3,500 kilometers where you don't have to pop up to the surface at all. Now, that gets you from HMAS Stirling to north of the equator. Now, okay, it's a boring and slow trip because you're traveling at four knots. So the idea is to get to your, your operational areas north of the equator, you go like hell to get up that far surfacing every couple of days or whatever to recharge the batteries. But once you're getting within a thousand kilometers of your area of interest, which is still a, a healthy, safe distance away, it's then that you go underwater and you do your sustained running. Has, has this technology been explained to ministers? Has anybody tried to give them a view of what technology can achieve now without news, using nuclear propulsion? let alone what's going to be possible in another 10 years' time. I really question the quality of advice and the decision-making processes involved surrounding all of that. Of course, I could be wrong, as I say. I, I don't know what's been taking place in these sessions, but I just flag it as something that I find deeply troubling. Another one that's troubling, of course, CERTAS. I've spent a lot of time on CERTAS, so I'm not going to repeat, repeat that again. Information is that defence and the government has signed off on a $309 million purchase from the United States for no good reason when that work could be done in Australia for a fifth of the price. And we have the capability here, but in a way of real substance for about the last 12 months. I've written about this extensively. If people want to go to back issues of APDR, they're very welcome to do so. It's the replacement of the Tiger and Taipan helicopters, Tiger being the armed reconnaissance helicopter, Taipan being the utility troop transport helicopter. In my view, by replacing them and buying Apache and Black Hawk helicopters from the United States via the FMS system, this is almost certainly an unnecessary $11 billion spend. I'll repeat the horrifying number, $11 billion dollars. That's what we're looking at. Again, if people, I, I, I don't have time to go into everything now, but I will again in future editions. Previous articles of mine detail how the problem has been not so much with the helicopters themselves. It's been with the army and CASG support systems. It's been very difficult. It's taken actually years of research to try and get to something approaching the bottom of this, but there is a wealth of information around to support what I've said. A lot of people, some of them still inside the organization, when I first started writing about this, said, oh, yes, yes, of course, you're right. It's, it's sort of, it's an open secret. We know the fault is our processes. It's not with the helicopters. The helicopters have had some issues no doubt. But when you really boil it down, that hasn't been the main problem. It's been part of the problem. The main part has been Army and CASG. This has been going on for years. It's well known internally. It's never come out into the public domain. I really believe that this is one that needs to be investigated. And on this one, I'll, on this segment, I'll leave you with the last thought, that in 2016, there was an independent study into maintenance issues for both uh, Tiger and Taipan. The findings of that report were instantly suppressed by defence, never seen the light of day. 
classified as top secret and totally buried. How about that 2016 report be made public, or at least in a redacted form, because my suspicion is it's been buried because it showed conclusively what I've just been saying, that the helicopters themselves, with certain qualifications, are okay. It's the support processes that have been largely at fault and for which the Australian taxpayer is in the process of forking out another $11 billion for earlier generations of helicopters from the United States. Now, also, I have to say at this point that when I'm critical of the defence system, it's not a personal attack. I don't want anyone to get upset and think that I hate you all. That's not the case at all. I know many people in the ADF and, and in the bureaucracy. I'm not going to be so cliched as to say that, that they're some of my best friends, but there are people that I've known for, for years. I, I have the highest respect for their intelligence and their integrity. However, the problem is the system. There's a lack of accountability. There's a lack of internal contestability. And in my opinion, there is way, way, way too much groupthink and a suppression of internal dissent. And this then manifests itself in the way that defence engages with the outside world. They don't want to be exposed to criticism. They're not equipped these days to handle it. They used to be, but not anymore. I mean, look, the, 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 there's even a ban on ADF personnel speaking with the media. It's the complete opposite of how things are handled in the United States and Britain and Sweden. And just the defence system does not trust its own people to be able to engage with the media. Now, I don't know whether it's still the case, it was a couple of years ago, that even a casual conversation, a casual interaction with a journalist, even if you bumped into someone at the shops, had to be reported. That's how bad it was. Uh, okay, they're the main grizzles. Look, a, a quick one. I'll conclude with the hype surrounding the announcement of sale of Boxer 8x8s for Germany. I just don't like hype. Boxer is a fine vehicle. I know that it has its critics. I'm not one of them. Rheinmetall are a good company. They used to engage a lot with the media. They don't anymore. I think that's because of some personnel changes and also because I know their internal thinking. They thought that when they won Land 400 Phase 2 with the Boxer, that they were therefore certain to be awarded Phase 3. And by the way, that might still prove to be the case. Now, first of all, the government claimed that the $1 billion order is you know, the most amazing export order Australia has ever received. No, that's not true. Um, it's certainly exceeded by the Nulka active decoy system. Now, in 2010, when figures were last available, when the 1,000th Nulka was sold, the value of that deal back then, total value was about 900 million. I think we must be getting close to double that number of Nulkas. So I would uh, expect that the value of the export business would be closer to 2 billion. And I think that the, the boxer figure would also have been surpassed by the sale of two Anzac frigates to New Zealand. That contract was awarded in either 1989 or 1990. That would be over the billion mark. I just really don't like the hype. It's a good story, but you just don't need to exaggerate it. It's good for Australian industry, but no, it's not the, it's not the most amazing deal ever. Um, the other thing... Yeah, there'll be work for Australia, but many of the components come from Europe. 
it's a bit like Hawkeye in that regard. MTU does the main engines and the add-on armor comes from another company. The Allison transmission comes from the US, all of that sort of stuff. What the actual benefit is, you'd need to speak with either an accountant or a commercial lawyer, for all of that stuff to be shipped here to Australia, to be assembled at Ipswich and then sent back to Germany, I'm just, dial it down, guys. Just explain the detail for what it is and just knock off all of the hype. Okay, uh, that's it for this week. Thank you for listening and uh, see you soon. Bye. That's today's Asia-Pacific Defence Reporter. For more in-depth articles, expert opinions and exclusive interviews, visit asiapacificdefencereporter.com. Stay informed, stay ahead. This is your source for all things defence. Until next time.